if we look at the world from the point of view of the first sentence of the book, which is regeneration is putting the life, putting life at the center of every act and decision, we have a different way of seeing the world and what we do, what we buy, what we make, what we um, support. And I think profoundly what it means to be a human being. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. Today, I am honored to be joined by an incredible leader in natural foods, entrepreneurship, and climate activism, Paul Hawken. Paul starts ecological businesses. He writes about nature and commerce and consults with the heads of state and CEOs on climatic, economic, and ecological regeneration. He has written eight books, including five National and New York Times bestsellers, Growing a Business, The Next Economy, The Ecology of Commerce, Blessed Unrest, and Drawdown. He is the founder of Project Drawdown, Regeneration.org, and just completed his latest work, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, which is published by Penguin Random House. It is released in the UK on September 14th, 2021, and everywhere else on September 21st. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks so much. And thank you for the <clears throat> introduction. When I listen to that introduction, it, it sounds like I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll join those ranks any day. <laughs> you know, we have a common thread in our histories. You were co-founder of Erwan, a natural foods company, and I've lived and worked in that same industry my entire life. I think we even know some of the same people, including Paul Stamets. And oh, yes. he's just one example that jumps to mind because, you know, what everything he's doing with mushrooms and bees is just incredible. Yeah, Paul is the uh, the elvish genius of the of the forest. He really, you know, his understanding, his mycological, you know, uh, intelligence is astounding. And and he's just so much fun to be with because you feel like you're in something from Lord of the Rings, like, you know, remember Bombadil, Tom Bombadil? You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's just bounding around the forest and knew everything and was totally at home in nature. And Paul is very much that way. And he's just spellbinding when he gives talks and, you know, the range with, with which he understands um, the influence and the effect of, you know, different families of fungi on human well-being and health on mind and on the environment as a whole is kind of like a gateway, you know, to possibility. And I feel like he's my mentor in that sense, because I feel like the whole discussion around climate for to this day even, but has been about probability of what's going to go wrong, how fast, when, and whether it's going faster, more wrong than we thought it was going wrong. Right. <laughs> and, and it's not going wrong. Climate is perfect, but the it's always perfect just the way it is. But what we haven't talked about is possibility and the cascading possibilities that come from um, the planet homeschooling us because that is really what's happening i mean we're being homeschooled by mother earth <laughs> yeah and and 
you know, nature never makes a mistake, only we do. And, and it was, what is our mistake? The, you know, the, it's being out of alignment with life, with biology. And, and so people like Paul Stamets and others, you know, that I'm sure you know, uh, what their work is about is alignment. You know, let's just, this is how life works. It is incredible. It's miraculous. It is beyond mysterious. You know, it is, um, it, uh, our understanding of it is just exploding right now in, mm -hmm. in terms of the living world. And we are unintentionally, and in some cases intentionally, but unintentionally destroying it as fast as we can. Well, isn't that the truth? I'm reminded of uh, something my husband often says to me. We live <clears throat> close to Santa Cruz, right? So when we go to the ocean, he's always saying to our children, never turn your back on the ocean. And the thing I often get thinking about on the heels of that, because every time I'm at the beach or near the ocean, the power of it just is all-encompassing. It's it's an, an incredible resource to us. And I I feel like we just need to – we've turned our back on Mother Nature, and we need to get back to remembering that we cannot do that. That would be a good slogan, never turn your back uh, on – to nature, I mean, and that is, a, you know, a, an oceanic or coastal maxim, you know, which you never keep your eye off it, you know, but, uh, but yeah, exactly. But not only have we turned away from it, <clears throat> we've lost literacy, we actually have lost what it is, not to say that anybody does understand it in its entirety, and we don't, you know, but we've lost that um, connection. Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of fundamental understanding. Somebody asked me, and I get this question all the time, credit, which is like, what is the most important thing? You know, what's the number one most important thing you know, <laughs> people can do? Tell them what is the most important thing you can do. And I said, that is so American, you know, like the top 10, the top number one, what's number one? Sound bites. That's all we have time for. <laughs> yeah, but is, there is no number one. But if, is, if you press me on that, like really push me on that one, it's like, find out where you live because you don't know where you live. You may know your address. You don't know whose land, unceded lands you're on, who lived there before you. You don't know that children can name 500 logos, commercial logos, and spot them and name them. They can't name three native plants or three native birds. And so basically humanity, especially um, privileged humanity who lives in exurbs, suburbs, you know, towns, cities, uh, or privates, whatever, <laughs> wherever they live, you know, the point is they don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know where you are, how can you have, if you don't, how can you have any empathy? How can you have any understanding? But most importantly, how can you fall in love with something you don't know, you don't know about? And we protect what we love. And so the most important thing to do is fall in love. Mm -hmm. And when you start to understand, you know, that what is outside is extraordinary in its complexity, far more complex than anything we've created, even regenerative agriculture in its new um, form right now, I mean, it's being reborn. When I started Erwan, the book that really made a big impression on me was Farmers of 40 Centuries, you know, which is like, how could they farm the same land for 40 centuries? Regeneratively, that's how they did it. There's no mm -hmm. question about it. They wouldn't have been there that long. But, but the thing is that regenerative ag is really an emergent technology, more complex than any single shiny object coming out of Silicon Valley. I can tell you that. 
in because of the we don't even know what's underneath you know underneath our feet we know a lot is there we know it's life we know it's virus and protozoa and bacteria and etc um, the interactions are extraordinary the, the number of of organisms there is in the trillions you know uh, just in your backyard or even in a, in, in a square yard and um, that's just the beginning you know and so it's not that we need to know all this or name it or understand it we probably never will but but to have respect and honor it and appreciate it for what it is and what it gives us so to me this idea of regeneration is actually it's going back to an, an innate quality that we have as human beings because every one of us regenerates every day our 30 trillion cells do every nanosecond or we wouldn't be having this conversation if they weren't doing that we have if we're parents or aunts and uncles or whatever i mean we do it with our nephews our nieces our children every day our acts of care our regenerative acts you know we do it with our families in a larger sense we do it with our animals our pets our gardens and so forth we do it in many extended ways we're always thinking about the care and the life of others and what we have lost is that sense of care for the life of the whole of our environment, the whole of our ecosystems, the whole of our forests and so forth, because we basically have been, you know, bought into an economic system that basically degenerates life. And what I mean by that is it takes life, no matter what you buy, no matter what service you are actually the recipient of, if you sort of, you know, follow the breadcrumbs back to the supply chain, you will find out that it is destroying life. It is taking life and that is degeneration. And so, Really, regeneration isn't an attempt to have a new code word like sustainability or something like that. It's so much to say, can we go back home to ourself and tap into this quality that's innate? It's innate to all of life. Life creates the conditions for life. That's what life does. And we are life. And so what would an economic system, what would a social system, what would uh, any system look like if we put life at the center of every act and decision. And that's really what the book Regeneration is about and the website and so forth. Wow. Okay. So you have me thinking I need to rename my podcast <laughs> from Care More Be Better, a social impact and sustainability mm -hmm. podcast to a regeneration podcast. I love it. You can take it. I mean, I, I, I offer the word to you because you are it and that's what you've been doing. Well, it's interesting because when I first got your book, what I expected I would see was I expected it to be specifically about regenerative agriculture, because that's the thing that I think it's talked about more from this perspective. And then as I paged through it and looked at each section, I mean, that's just one element of what you're talking about. And you really dive into basically every planetary and human problem that we have, many of which are socially related. And it's just... It's an audacious read, but what I love about it, just on the in the brief time I've been able to spend with it, it came to me two days ago on my birthday, so it felt like a really good birthday present, is that, I mean, it feels like something I can chapterize, I can read by sections, I can choose the things mm -hmm. that I'm most passionate about from it to really champion as a mantle. Right. It feels like with the book, I have like an inspirational toolkit to make more of a difference in what I do every day. And so I just want to thank you for that. That's incredible. You're so welcome. One of the things that you see in the literature, it's well-intentioned literature. The literature is 
I have done the research or we have done the research. We know you don't listen up. <laughs> yeah, it's really important. And if you don't do this, we're all screwed. Okay. I mean, this is kind of the leitmotif of, of climate literature. And I feel like my job is my job and our job, we have a staff, you know, we have amazing staff and researchers and scholars and so forth, is definitely do the research, no question about it. And the science is, I tell my staff, I mean, there's 7,000 citations in that book, but they're not in the book, they're on the website, 7,000. So we, mm -hmm. we've done our homework on the science, but science for me is like a floor, you know, this is a floor and the floors are for dancing. <laughs> What the book tries to do is create narratives and spaciousness. And and you just named it, actually, by the way you started to look at it, read it, understand it, or see its value to you, which is you went to areas where you're either curious or you're already lit up or you, you already have some knowledge, you know, or you want more or you want to get whatever. And, and the idea when I, I, I mean, I wrote, maybe 80% of it, you know, and Courtney White wrote some, and, and then there's essays, you know, from Carl Safina and Isabella Tree and Charles Massey, some really amazing, amazing people in the world, but Leah Penniman at Soul Fire Farm in Albany. But, but the point being really, when I edited it was to not start at the outset of the book and say, everything's connected, you know, which is like, yeah, it's true, but it's a cliche, you know, and it's like, it's to me, it's like a new age bomb, you know, like, well, okay, so what? And rather than just going into everything from as complicated as beavers, you know, to net zero cities, to marine protected areas, you know, to fire ecology and these things. And then when you read about them, you think, oh, there's connections within them. You think, oh, that's connected to this. Oh, I never knew that. How interesting. And so that the, the idea is that at some point, you know, you're going to come to the conclusion like, wow, everything is connected in ways that are so intricate and fascinating. Uh, I, I didn't know that. So you are coming to that conclusion as opposed to the author or the book saying everything's connected, you know, which is like, yeah, but it, it just falls flat, you know, that statement to me. But the subject matter doesn't fall flat. It's fascinating. You have me thinking about Joseph Campbell's work. Um, there was this book I read in college for a literature class of all things. And um, the professor wanted us to draw connections from one chapter to the next because Joseph Campbell was really fond of making connections that you wouldn't necessarily see. He really was. And so uh, what this professor had discovered in reading it was that the first, cha the first subject of each chapter was connected to one another so he basically gave us essay assignments where we would take one paragraph from one chapter and relate it to another paragraph from another chapter. And there was always something that could be drawn. And it's that's the way the book feels to me. So I just, I love that. You know, something is really curious. And I just discovered it recently. But if you go back to my work and you read the last chapter or even the epilogue, so to speak, and you read it, it portends the next book. And I never realized that. I never realized it because at the time when I finished those books, I didn't know what the next book was going to be at all. At least I didn't think I did. So that's another connection. But I think the 
the the the fundamental cause of, of global warming is disconnection. Hmm. We're disconnected from each other in profound mm -hmm. ways and getting more so. Uh, we've discovered all sorts of ways to do that, social media being profoundly the most important way we've learned to disconnect the human population. We thought it was going to be the opposite, but it's actually not true. Um, but we've disconnected ourselves from nature, and we've disconnected nature from itself through habitat fragmentation, ocean acidification, pollution, mining, deforestation, etc. So in, in a way, you know, what we're talking about in terms of regeneration is, is a profound reconnection. First to self, you know, is it, you take care of yourself because you can't take care of anything unless you're doing that. And, and then you can take care of your, your, your family, your people, your friends, your place, your community, others who are in need or want and so forth. We've balkanized ourselves, you know, our life, our, our, our sensibilities, you know, and, and we're so full of things to do and information, we're flooded with it. But what we've lost is that fundamental connection to our own life. 70% of the diseases in the United States are metabolic, and that comes from eating ultra processed food. And just Actually, I call it non-food. In the book, I say this isn't ultra-processed food. It's a chemical experiment. Right. And we've labeled as food. And then, so that's that creates this disconnection. And you have these anomalies like Pepsi-Cola, say we're making all the Pepsi with renewable energy. And I'm saying, you know, no, 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 no. You're stealing the health of our children. So I don't care what you energy source you make it with, you know. You're making the wrong thing, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, and you're advertising it, you know, in ways that, you know, basically seduce youth and so forth. So again, it's really, I'm not trying to mow mow Pepsi-Cola. I'm just trying to say, if we look at the world from the point of view of the first sentence of the book, which is regeneration is putting the life, putting life at the center of every act and decision, we have a different way of seeing the world and what we do, what we buy, what we make, what we um, support. And I think profoundly what it means to be a human being. Probably the greatest cause of depression in the world is lack of meaning and purpose. My life has no meaning. Right. I don't have a purpose, you know, and so Remember I said, you know, we're being homeschooled by the planet, you know, and it's like a gift, like gender, the pronoun, she, but it doesn't matter, you know, him, her, his, it doesn't matter. The planet, the planet is offered, it's an offer from the planet to us and so forth, you know, in, in that offer basically is to reconnect to where you live, to who we are. And so, and, and so it's such an interesting time because the, I, I can't think of something, a life that is going to be more meaningful right now than looking at the news, seeing the headlines, seeing the Northern Hemisphere on fire this year, okay, from Siberia to Greece to Spain to Canada, to the United States to California, I mean, so forth, you know, to see it on fire. And, and rather to get anxious and depressed and fearful about it, which is understandable, makes sense, by the way, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I'm not criticizing that. But rather than stop there, say, you know, why am I here? You know, and if, if regenerating life on earth isn't a lifetime avocation, vocation, purpose, and 
I don't know what it is. And it gives people dignity, it gives them meaning, it gives them a sense of purpose that is transcendent of uh, narcissism and egoism, of self, of bank accounts. You know, I'm not saying people don't need money, they do, of course. But there's, you know, there's no reason. We've learned how to steal the future and make money. Right. Good thinking. Okay. We can heal the future and have income and vocations and a GDP and prospering. We can't have centa billionaires, you know? No, probably not. But we can regenerate this planet and have a thriving economy, thriving in a different way than we think of thriving right now, which is capital accumulation, but thriving in a meaningful way that actually gives us security, gives us a sense of uh, well-being, which is lacking in the world. I agree with you. Now, we're both in uh, relative closely proxim to Silicon Valley, where technology seems to be our god, so to speak, right? And so many companies, it seems, are springing up to try and create solutions to the problems we face of food insecurity, but without really taking a nod to the earth. And so I wanted to talk to you for a moment specifically about solutions that are being proposed or out there like the Impossible Burger, but also vertical indoor farming using aquaponics, aeroponics, etc. that are getting quite a bit of funding, quite a bit of focus, and really, it seems are not focused on this solution. It's like, in a way, they've given up on the possibility of creating a sustainable ecosystem and world, and they're going to technology to create proteins out of air. There's an air protein company, or uh, the Impossible Burger, or the 1.1 with Sam Bertram leading them doing vertical farms in Santa Clara. So let's talk about that. I want your perspective to better understand how you see that laying in and where problems arise. It's so interesting. I mean, it, it comes up for me because, you know, I've been in, uh, started in the food business when I was young, Erwan, you know, and the way it started was interesting because there was a food co-op. People every month came in, we brought it and bagged it and shared it and people put in the money that it cost and that was it. And I loved doing that because I was reading and I could read all day and some, all of a sudden the customer come in and they're like, okay, great. Okay. But I mean, it wasn't like a store where I had to be at the cash register. I could be there with my books. And one day somebody came into the store and asked me, how do you know your oil is cold pressed? You know, it's hay oil. And I'm going, mm -hmm. well, because it says so, you know, cold pressed for you. <laughs> and then how do you know your oats are organic? And I said, well, we buy them from Mennonites in Pennsylvania. Come on, Mennonites don't lie. You know, I mean, they're Mennonites, you know, uh, they don't even have a car or a truck, you know, I mean, and when they left, you know, these, these people left, I realized as a journalist, you know, that I had just lied in the sense, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll find out. So I wrote to Hain and I got a letter back. Uh, there was no internet, you know, I mean, you, you type a letter, <laughs> you put a <laughs> stamp on it and send it. And, <laughs> you know, and a couple of weeks later, I got a letter, a really nice stationery, I must say, you know, in Boston, this Hain, you know, and said, well, there's really no such thing as cold pressed oils anymore. They're all cold processed, which means that they're solvent extracted, you know, using hexane. And then they're reduced in temperature to 34 degrees, uh, 34 to 36 degrees and the cloudy parts called the stearates are filtered off so that the oil is clear. And I was pissed off. I just felt mm. like, what? I was just like, 
that is just a lie. You're lying, you know. And you know, I mean, I was a Cub Scout, you know, and a Boy Scout. I was like, you don't lie. You know? <laughs> it's like, and then the the uh, a few days later, the truck came in from Pennsylvania with the oats, you know, in these hundred pound bags, and on the, you know, so I, I was lifting them off the truck like this, and I could see the label sewn into the Bemis bag, and it said National Oat Company, Des Moines, Iowa. I'm going, you know, I think it's four bags, you know, I'm going down the stairs in Newberry Street, you know, carrying these hundred pound bags and I'm going, hmm. So after the truck left and everything, I called up the National Oak Company in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> and a really nice woman answered and, you know, how can I help you? And I said, tell me about your organic farming program, you know, and she said, what? And I said, you know, organic farming, she said, what's that? And I explained what it was. And she said, oh, my goodness. She said, well, let me tell you something. We just buy oats and roll them. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me so mad, you know, and it just like not at her. She was great. She was so nice. But it just like, damn it. And so then I got interested in food because I realized it was just fraudulent. This is like come on, this is 1966, you know, it's fraud, you know, 67, you know, this is a long time ago. And so I then decided to replace every single product we bought and sold from a farm that I had visited. I walked the dirt. I knew the farmer. I stayed overnight. I ate with them. Uh, I heard their history. Uh, That's how Erwan started. If it wasn't for that, I don't think, you know, Erwan as it became or would never exist, I would have got, I would have done something else. And so when I see what you're talking about in Silicon Valley, I'm going, it's a very male thing with all due respect to my gender, which is to solve the problems of technology with technology. In other words, well, that technology sort of fucked things up. So let's have this technology and we'll fix what we did with the last technology, right? And the last technology in food is industrial agriculture, mm-hmm. of course. And it's still, of course, is absolutely dominant. But and so we'll do it, you know, in these enclosed environments, you know, with the vertical farming or these big warehouses and so forth, you know. Uh, we'll culture food, we'll grow food, you know, we'll uh, synthesize heme, you know, um, to make the burgers taste just like a beef burger, you know, which we'll actually try to feed the desire people have for fast food. <laughs> Plant-based food is great. So, I mean, look at, say, Beyond Meat. And so that's great. It's, it's like they're, you know, cooking up something that is shaped like, you know, <laughs> looks like, tastes sort of like, you know, meat, fine, no problem. I got, it's been around for a long time. Worthington Foods, soy-based foods, it's been around mm-hmm. The, the monasteries in Japan did this for hundreds and hundreds of years. They still do, you know, really elegant ways of creating fake meat, fake fish, fake chicken, and everything, you know, with basically gluten, you know, and spices and, you know, things like that. So they have no problem with that. The problem I have with the idea that we're going to get our food from indoor farming is that it won't work, number one, and it's very energy intensive, number two. I say it won't work. Uh, I got a call from the China Times, which is a Singapore. They were talking about they're going to become food sufficient because they were depending on food from old Malaysia and China and so forth. And they have 3% of their land is arable. Hmm. It's, it's all developed. And she wanted to know about, you know, vertical farming and, you know, all these different ways of growing food intensively, you know. 
using aeroponics, aquaponics, you know. I said, tell me what you ate yesterday. And said, why? I said, well, just tell me what you ate. It was noodles and soups and it had beef and there was fish and uh, the noodles were made from wheat and the, you know, the seasoning from soy. And then she just named all the things. And I said, virtually nothing you named except the cilantro and the basil could be grown in, in indoor farming. You can't grow beef, animals, soy, wheat, corn, grain, barley. You can't do it. And if you want to grow basil fresh and watercress and, you know, bib lettuce, you know, and things in town, well, fine. But it doesn't make any sense. And second of all, the act of growing food actually can be regenerative. That is to say, it actually brings back pollinators, brings back the, the, the health of the land, and you're getting nutrient density. The thing that makes food nutritious is stress. It's called hormesis too, you know, when you exercise that's stress and you can become healthier. If you do it too much, you won't be, but stress creates health. The body needs stress, so do plants. So what stresses a plant? Heat, UV rays, drought, cold, insects. These are the things that plants deal with. And what happens is they develop phytonutrients. They deal with it. They change the constituency, the chemical constituency of the plant, or they send their roots down deeper. Their roots get more access to bioavailable minerals and so forth. So the plant has evolved over time uh, with stress. And so now what we're doing is we're talking about putting plants on an IV drip system, right? So you have this, this fluid going in, you know, with the macronutrients, you know, NPK, of course, you know, and, and maybe some minerals, you know, or something else, you know, to keep it healthy for two weeks or three weeks or five weeks, you know, because it's a very short growth cycle. And it's fine. I mean, who cares if it's basil or, like I said, bib lettuce, but uh, you don't have a healthy plant. You have a plant that's like uh, somebody on a coma. You can keep somebody on a coma for 39 years, you know, and, and with drips, in, but they're not alive in the conventional sense. And so then you... So then you've just forgotten what food is. Food is an intimate connection to place and to weather and to the sky and to the insects and to, you know, fog or sun or heat or particularly that place in terms of the soil. All the soils in the world are different, you know, and plants co-evolved in those soils and so forth. So there's that, you know, which is like, really? And then you have cultured meat, you know, which is we're going to take, you know, embryonic cells or cells from a cow or chicken and so forth. And then in these very, very carefully controlled situations, you know, in terms of temperature, heat, humidity, uh, nutrient baths and so forth, you're going to grow the cell. And it's true. I mean, the dream of every cell is to become two cells. <laughs> and so they'll grow. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, so that's you're 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 taking advantage of mitosis. You know, you're saying, okay, it's going to duplicate if we can get just the right conditions and so forth, and you make a chicken nugget. Um, but there is no way that that can ever be ecologically, energetically. Uh, uh, sustainable. It's just not possible, you know, <laughs> and put it, put aside the ick factor, you know, and the, you know, putting that aside, whether you want to or don't want to eat it, you know, or the what it tastes like, it's just the, the metrics aren't there. And then you have impossible burger, which is, uh, you know, Pat Brown's thing out of Stanford and with a, 
um, adamant uh, endorsement and devotion to GMO soy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the, th- the, the thing about glyphosate, which is really because it's the GMO is not to change the constituency of the soy in terms of nutrition or this or that. It's about to make it herbicide resistant. That's what GMO soy is. It's resistant to glyphosate. And now they have new ones that are resistant to glyphosate and dicamba, which is really even a worse, more pernicious herbicide. Um, but putting that aside, um, the fact is that glyphosate is anti-life. Now it's just not regenerative, it's degenerative because uh, glyphosate was invented as an antibiotic, it's antiviral, it's antibacterial, it's, you know, it kills life, you know, that was its function, original function, it does it to this day. And so, um, so basically you have a burger that's like to stop animal consumption, which makes sense if the animals come from CAFOs, confined area feeding operations, which are just a disaster for everybody. I think the people who work there, the animals who live there, if you call that living, um, the way they're fed, the manure, the effluence, I mean, the whole thing is just so um, destructive, okay? So the intention to get rid of CAFOs is laudable, and I praise Pat Brown and anybody who's doing that wants to you know, move a, us away from that, but to do so in such a way that then basically um, furthers industrial agriculture, which is basically not just killing the soil, it does kill the soil, but we now know the glyphosate actually is harming us and that it's Mm -hmm. ubiquitous. It's like the worst pesticide companies in the world, Dow, you know, I mean, Dow Chemical and, you know, and Monsanto, you know, until glyphosate, by the way, uh, buyer, you know, these companies knew that you never made pesticides that were water soluble. They were always lipophilic. They were fat soluble, which is why you have DDT and DDE and other, you know, aldrin and pesticides in your fat tissue in your body, uh, where actually the body keeps them. It just, they stay there and, uh, for a long period of time. But glyphosate is water soluble. So it's everywhere in the world. It's in water, it's in all our food, it's in all our children. And we know that Impossible Burger, or we have heard or we have seen data that suggests that Impossible Burger has a hundred times more glyphosate in it than is required or needed to cause leaky gut. That is to to cause which is what glyphosate does, you know. And it breaks through that mucosal membrane, you know in our gut and which is just so i mean it's thinner than a tenth of a piece of cellophane it's so thin you know just a few cells thick and once that happens then you have chaos in terms of physical human health because then you have bacteria you have organisms that are in the gut which are doing amazing things creating serotonin dopamine and all sorts of stuff we know it's our second brain uh going into the bloodstream and that's, you know, there's just a whole list of inflammatory diseases that come from that. And so I find it odd that Impossible Burger is so adamantly devoted to GMO soy. If they said, look at, you know, we're growing like a weed and we can't get non-GMO soy sufficiently, but we'll do everything we can to uh, change that in the next two, three years and say, well, okay, go ahead. Great. Thank you for understanding that this is about life and not about killing. I think often 
People misunderstand what GMOs are. And you'll even hear really incredibly well-informed scientists who are expert in their field. Neil deGrasse Tyson is one example. Speak out in favor of GMOs because they think it's going to solve our global food problems because that's how it's marketed, right? Mm. Oh, I need to make this Frankenfish salmon that's going to double its size <laughs> in shorter time and um, outcompete other salmon in captivity um, so that I can feed the masses. Yeah. And then guess what? That fish always, they will always escape into the wild. And if they can outcompete the yeah. native salmon in that area, then guess what? Those salmon are going to get weaker. They're not going to be able to swim upstream as far, taking nutrients from the ocean into our forests where they're needed to keep the forest healthy. And then this whole cycle continues. It's like the law of unintended consequences is right in central frame. And we're sitting there, what, supporting it and saying, oh, we want the unintended consequences. We're not going to dig deep enough. No, it's... it. It defies common sense. And again, remember I said earlier, I said, we don't know where we live. Okay. I don't think that people who are pro, for example, you know, genetically modified salmon have ever been on a salmon stream, have right. watched the migration, have talked to indigenous people who have been depending and harvesting uh, salmon for thousands of years that understand that pelagic fish, you know, actually have this incredible molecular memory of where they were born. I live, we're both, we live in California where, you know, in the fall, they start coming and waiting for the first rainfall. They're not waiting for rain, actually. They're waiting for the rain to hit the streams and the rivers, you know, that they came from, you know, and to wash into the ocean. And then they sense it. And then they follow that molecular trail, which is extraordinary, back to streams that are no wider than a computer screen, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it can be very small and wiggling into the rocks if the stream is still functional and clean and clear, you know, and lay eggs, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, fry, you know, come out of there and so forth. So the idea of replacing that with something that is not born, where was it born, you know, and does it go back? Maybe they stick these little fish in, in streams and maybe that happens. I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, the other problem is that we need more to feed the world. Well, 70% of the food in the world feeds animals. So it's feeding CAFOs. So we grow plenty of food. We have plenty of farmland. We have too much farmland actually to feed the world. We're not feeding the world. And so this has been used as a kind of guilt trip. When I started one. And then when I started to, I got started to get press in this, we were growing, you know, organic food and you know, all that sort of stuff. And we were mow mowed again and again and again by the chairman of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard and different scientists and, you know, were you hippies, you know, you're privileged, you can eat that way, but what about the rest of the children in the world? You will starve the children if we went to that kind of agriculture. And of course, it's the other way around. We're going to starve the children of the world if we continue with industrial agriculture. It's upside down and backwards. But that logic was being used. And it's still being used to this day by industrial ag. The summer, we feed the world and you guys are on a, your own, you know, organic, regenerative, you know, sustainability trip and so forth. But we are the ones who take this seriously and we're going to take care of the world. And so that's why you have the Bill Gates. You have, again, men 
think that way. They think that if we can just create more with, you know, it's not really with less, by the way, but just more, you know, by taking more actually with what they don't understand and so forth, they will solve a problem instead of creating a worse problem that they're trying to solve. If you're talking about modifying papaya in Hawaii, you know, okay, well, whatever, if it works for you, you know, but it doesn't really change the ecosystem. It doesn't change the soil. It doesn't change pollinators. It doesn't change um, the nutrition of it and so forth. So when we say GMO, the problem is it got conflated with so many different things and so forth, you know, and somebody could make an argument to me about GMO that like with the papaya in Hawaii, I'd say, okay, fine. I mean, I feel fine about it. You know, not that I'm the judge, you know, but I would say that, but that's not what's happening whatsoever. It is absolutely an enabler of uh, chemical pollution and, and, and the degradation and extraction of fertility from the land. Yeah, I mean, that's why the non-GMO project seal, right, bears that butterfly because Monsanto, yeah. what do they do? They put pesticides right in the DNA of the corn right. and it kills flocks of butterflies. These are the unintended consequences we need to avoid. Yeah, actually, that was an intended consequence. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they intended for bugs to die. They just didn't know it was going to be the butterfly. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. did they, which is worse. I remember uh, the head of Monsanto, the CEO, Bob Shapiro, was a friend of mine. Uh, and he's a friend because he was Buddhist. And so I would see him at Buddhist retreats. We do these, you know, 10 day silent retreats and Bob Shapiro was there. And, and so I, I, I know people find that sort of, you know, impossible to believe, but no, he was. And, but then not during the retreat, but before and after and other times, you know, we talk about it and this Bacillus thuringiensis, which is the, but was sort of, you know, knitted into the corn, you know, which is a natural pesticide. It is actually, it's, it's a natural bacteria. But I remember talking to the scientists there and they knew that it would create resistance, that it actually wouldn't work for very long. They also knew then that glyphosate would create resistance. I mean, it was so interesting. And the reason now you have Monsanto Bayer or Bayer Monsanto and Syngenta and Cortivas, uh, the Dow Chemical, petitioning the EPA to authorize dicamba for food crops, which is so much more pernicious than glyphosate as a herbicide, is because glyphosate isn't working. And it's interesting, it's not working against mm -hmm. uh, a weed, it's called pigweed, but actually it's amaranth one of the most ancient foods there is in the world. It goes back 7,000 years in terms of cultivation, has these beautiful, small kind of like... Are they red little flowers? Well, I'm talking about the seeds, okay. you know, the seeds of the food, uh, but like quinoa, even smaller, you know, and so nutritious, so high in protein, so good. And so that's what they can't kill now is food. <laughs> 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 with glyphosate, you know, and there's a beautiful book. I mean, I'm digressing, you know, I mean, you can snip this out of the thing, but, but again, when I got involved with agriculture, you know, young as a youth, you know, I mean, my grandfather was a farmer, so it wasn't that foreign to me, but, you know, with organic agriculture, I read a book called Weeds by Joseph Kochenauer, published during the depression, 32, I think at University of Oklahoma. And it was a really beautiful, it's a beautiful book to this day. And what he showed was that if you have this kind of weed, a Canadian thistle or this or that and so forth, that the weed, the weed, the plant is growing there to heal the soil. Hmm. 
and that he showed how different deficiencies in the soil would attract a certain species of plant, a certain family, because they were they had deep tap roots to bring up minerals because the soil had been demineralized and so forth. That actually, when we look at, you know, oh my God, the weeds are taking over, they're taking over because the soil has been depleted. So the, to see them as actually the earth trying to heal itself, to bring back uh, diversity and a healthy uh, ecosystem, you know, in nature, you don't see bare ground except in, you know, desert landscapes and, you know, steep mountains and so forth. But I mean, the earth always wants to be covered because that is what creates the most, most life. And so when you get like amaranth, you know, taking over corn fields, GMO corn in the Midwest, it's like, it's like the soil going, we're impoverished. This soil sucks. <laughs> yeah. We're going to bring some nutrients back. We're going to bring some nutrients back. And Amaran says, I'm here. You know, I'm, 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 you know, anthropomorphizing weeds and corn and soil. I, I, you know, I'm just for fun. But the point being is that if you step back and look at it, you go, oh, my soil is sick and it's trying to heal itself, you know? Yeah. As opposed to, oh my God, it's a pernicious weed, you know? So let's get back to climate change and activism for a moment. Yeah. Um, climate change is obviously a big, big problem. It's the biggest that our generation will face. And so is social activism in a way. It's like these two things are very connected. So how can we move forward from your perspective without suffering from this Mount Everest syndrome where we just feel like it's all too much, give up, go home? And uh, I don't know, call it in, I guess, because it call seems it like that's what a lot of people are are starting to feel from from what I hear, just even speaking to people in my community, like, oh, it's just too much for me to even think about. Yeah, I mean, they look at everything and say it's way past its cell date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like, uh, well, first of all, I think we need to talk differently. The, the messaging around this uh, has guaranteed that 98 it's actually between 98 and 99 percent of human beings on the planet today are disengaged from doing anything about global warming right how could that be it's been in the public sphere for 45 50 years and you say well that's i can tell you why because the language absolutely is either incomprehensible or meaningless or numbing uh and it just hasn't worked I mean, you know, I, I mean, the, the language around combating, tackling, fighting, you know, it's like, again, my sweet gender males, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's male language, you know, you don't see a woman saying we're going to combat, you know, climate change or, you know, it's really men, you know, who came up with that and men dominated climate science until recently, they still do actually, but uh, it's, there, there has been this change in the last 10 years, but so then the language itself was all about metrics and acronyms, you know, and, and, and jargon, you know, what does net zero mean? What does carbon neutral mean? What does decarbonization mean? What does mitigate mean? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, these words are like, what are you guys talking about? You know? And so people who are inside, who are literate in climate science and so forth, it makes sense, but they're it's a bubble. They're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And even within that bubble, very few people do anything. 
they think that if they're watching a documentary and not Netflix about climate, they've done something, you know, or they do the recycling faithfully every Thursday morning, you know, whatever. It's like they think they're doing something, you know, or they bought a Tesla, which didn't do anything, in my opinion, by the way. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so I think that EVs does something, but, you know, the idea that we can get a 6,000 pound, you know, $80,000 car, you know, and so forth, and somehow we're addressing you know, global warming is just kind of like, you know, yeah, that's why I opted for the Chevy Bolt. <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly, right. You know, but so we've languaged it. And then with the science as it came out was about future existential threat. Okay, like, hey, this is coming, we need to do something now or and along the way to prevent what is coming. And the, basically, what was coming was caused by global warming. And so one of the things that we have to take out of our language is climate change. The climate is perfect. Climate always changes. It changes every nanosecond. If it didn't, we wouldn't have seasons, food, beauty and forests and you know glaciers. I mean, come on. So climate change is a good thing. Second, the way the climate is today is perfect because it is response or part of the biosphere itself, the atmosphere and the biosphere are not things where you can draw a line and say, okay, that's biosphere, that's atmosphere. They're inextricably bound to the same thing. And so the climate reflects the biosphere mm. and the biosphere is what we've changed, right? You know, by, uh, yes, and our combustion of fossil fuels have then, you know, basically gone up into the atmosphere, you know, in terms of CO2 and other greenhouse gases from other practices, you know. However, kind of stop thinking we're fighting climate change. Uh, what we're dealing with is warming. That is, it's just mm -hmm. warmer. So th it's the warming that's changing the climate and the climate creates weather. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to understand, okay. So how can we basically stop warming and then reduce the causes of warming so we can get back to a, a more stabilized climate. You know, the last 10,000 years has been relatively stable. You still get, you know, really interesting climatic events, but not so interesting as they're becoming and be, you know, right now is too much. And so that's our goal. And so our goal, again, isn't about fighting, tackling, mitigating. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to mitigate today, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, nobody. I really, I mean, or fight, tackle. I, I was asked about that on stage in Vancouver two years ago, you know, about how I mean, we tackle, and, you know, it was a man, of course. And, you know, and I said, you want to come up stage here and, and show us how you're going to do it? Because this is the atmosphere. We're in an auditorium. Where do you think you're breathing? Right. This is it. How, do you, how are you going to tackle this? You know, show me. So what, I was, what I was trying to point at you, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to say we've languaged it so we've othered it. It's something else, someplace else. And we need to fix it. You know, there's no it there. We need to fix ourselves and who we are and how we live and how we respect each other and life itself. That's what needs fixing. That creates climate. That creates global warming, right? And so... We also need to name the goal, which is why Drawdown came out. I said when I it started in 2001, it was a third assessment and, and the people were like, same words, mitigation, you know, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> then fighting, tackling, combating, you know, and, and 
I went around to NGOs and scientists and university friends and so forth institutions and said, can we name the goal, please? Those aren't goals, those are verbs. I'm an English major, I'm not a scientist, but you don't have a verb as a goal. <laughs> That's part of how you get to where you might go, but... Might be, but maybe not. You know, the yeah. goal actually is to reverse global warming. And that's really important to name the goal. Our goal isn't to mitigate. Mitigate means to reduce the pain of something and the seriousness. Mm. And that's what mitigation means, you know? Why would we want to reduce the pain and seriousness of it? It's going to screw us. So we actually want to stop, you know, emissions and start to bring carbon back home from whence it came. It came from here, you know, planet Earth. It didn't come from some other planet, you know? And it's food for the planet. And, uh, you know, this what photosynthesis, what the plant world, what, is what we, it eats, it eats carbon dioxide and splits it into sugar and oxygen, you know, with uh, the use of light. And so, you know, to look at it that way, then second, can we map measure model mm -hmm. solutions that exist, that we know how to do them, no, not like, you know, pie in the sky and so forth, and see if we can accomplish it. And I, I didn't know. And I asked for years for people to do that. And they said, we don't know how to do it or we don't have the funding to do it or that's not our focus, but it's a good idea and maybe you should do it. I said, I don't know how to do it either. But that's how Drawdown came about when I started to do it in 2013, 2014 and gather a small team. Um, uh, Amanda Ravenhill, Chad Fishman, Crystal Chazelle. I mean, we didn't know how to do it either, by the way. <laughs> I you mean, have to start somewhere, though. And you got some incredible thinkers together and did, started got, to build that solution. We got advisors, amazing scientific advisors. We got researchers from all over the world and so forth. And I used to go out funding for it. You had to get funding. Could you help us? People just said no. They just looked down their nose at it. You know, a <laughs> book on books, you know. You know, they would say, well, who's doing heading research? It's Chad Frischman. I said, you know, I said, yeah, he's got a you know degree from Oxford. And they'd say, what's his degree? And I said, art history. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, he's really good, though, at research. And they'd say, well, what's your degree? And I said, I actually don't have a degree, but I studied English, you know. I mean, so, I mean, again, we didn't have the pedigree, you know, to do it. But we went out and got scholars from all over the world who did, you know. And we call them drawdown fellows, you know, and amazing young people, you know, in their in their twenties, primarily some a little bit in thirties, you know, just all over from all six continents, and we started to work together and collaborate, you know, uh, and that's what created drawdown, and set, that's the same thing we did with uh, regeneration as well, by the way, and so forth, you know, but I mean, so to provide people a sense of possibility, you know, and and, and so I feel like what 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 people lack right now, even from Drawdown, and I knew it was narrow in a certain sense. It ranked everything. How much does it cost? How much will we save if we scaled it over the next 30 years, you know, to 2050? And okay, that was the modeling uh, methodology. What is missing there and what is regeneration is about is that you have the book the last eight pages is called Action and Connection. It is mm -hmm. the most important part of the book, by the way. And the, the first part of the book to me is a neurotransmitter, <laughs> the, the literary equivalent of a neurotransmitter. <laughs> Go to this <laughs> neuro. And the Action Connection is basically the wormhole to the website. The website 
has three things or several things, but one, the most important thing is called Nexus. And Nexus is the most complete listing and network of climate solutions in the world today, but not just a listing, but is actually how to do it, mm -hmm. how exactly what you can do. Now, what you can do as an individual for sure, but as it says, and I saw you probably saw that in the book, there's no such thing as an individual. That's just sort of the ego waking up every morning going, hey, you know, uh, but you actually don't exist as an individual. You exist as a family, as, you know, relationships, as a neighborhood, as community, as a church, as a school, as a company, as a, you know, your network is so fascinating. You know, that is who we are. And we have agency. Your podcast is agency, right? And you're one person for sure. But how many people do you reach? How often? In what way? That is what you've chosen to do. Everybody has agency and it varies, of course, you know, but the fact is we all do. So we go into those levels of agency, you know, it's like, well, this is what you can do as a neighborhood or as a community, if it applies, this is what you can do as a city, as a company, as a school, as a classroom, you know, these are ways you can affect these challenges like the boreal forest or solutions, you know, like regenerative ag or, you know, food waste and so forth, you know, and this, and these are what we call, um, what in parlance, the bad actors. These are the people that are really screwing it up. This is, you know, this is the chairman of Procter and Gamble who's cutting down virgin trees in the boreal forest to make plush toilet paper, you know, and this is his phone number and this is his email. And I'm sure he'd like to hear from you if you have feelings about that, <laughs> you know, so like this is it. So that's influence, right? Really important to influence, not just to be there and, you know, in all the different ways you can influence and, and also politicians or, or legislatures or policies at what a city council level and so forth. And then we have what we call the good actors. That is to say people who are really making a difference. Daniel Nuremberg at food, you know, food tank, amazing what she's doing, you know, uh, civil eats is uh, the other, uh, uh, um, website she has in Europe. And so we, we will list those people. And then we list all the organizations that are just kicking butt, you know, mm. they're just a great job including podcasts by the way you know if their focus is in that area that that solution or challenge is about and then all the videos these are great videos these are great documentaries these are great books these are the articles and so forth you want to know about degraded land restoration you want to get involved with that this is the two to three billion hectares out there that has actually been trashed by industrial agriculture deforestation and here's what to do and you it's all links, you know, we're not telling you what to do it's saying here. It's just a plethora of things going out there in the world, the people, the organizations, the intelligence, the brilliance, the courage, you know, what Nexus does is take you into the world of regeneration, you know, and, and we're doing it. It's gone. It's, it's happening. It's not like we're trying to start something. We are just trying to honor what is and to bring it to the fore so that other people can see it and they can see each other. And then we also have climate action systems, which is basically a learning pod where you can say, God, you know, I want to, I want to get natural gas out of my house altogether. I don't want any natural gas, no fossil fuels in my house or heating oil if it's in the East coast. And this is how you do it. This is how heat pumps, this is how they work. But I've done it in my neighborhood, which is I I'm doing that to my house. And I realized that the plumbers around me didn't know 
much of anything <laughs> and and they were bsing me and so i have david i have andy you know i have other people here you know who are homeowners and going let's figure this out you know and we're figuring it out that's a learning pod and we have learned a lot and what we have learned is a pod and then you can have it you want scotts valley here this is what we've learned a lot of it will apply to scotts valley where you live some of it won't you know, and then you can add to it and so forth. So basically it goes back to cells. The dream of every cell is to be two cells. Well, that's what knowledge wants to do too, is to split, to, to, to become two, become four, become A, B, 16. So climate action system is a way for our understanding and our learning, you know, about what to do and how to do it and what works and what doesn't work and all that sort of stuff to basically disseminate and to proliferate. And then finally we have was called punch lists, you know, which are, which are charming and funny and, and, you know, but it's basically the seven things you're committed to doing in the next month, year, ten, whatever. And, you know, I have a friend of a friend and what he does is teach children in refugee camps art mm. and makes murals and gives them paintbrushes. And these children aren't being taught anything. That's regeneration mm-hmm. it, to really like, like open this up, you know, to say like, oh no, it's just Regen Egg. And that's why you talked about, you thought it was gonna be about Regen Egg. That's why I put it in the middle of the book, <laughs> not the first one, it's in the middle, like, oh, here it is finally, you know? So that's what, the, to answer you, a long answer to your question about, you know, what can I do or do I feel defeated and so forth? It's like, I think of the Wendell Berry quote, which is be joyous though you know all the facts. So which means, oh, look at the science. Holy smokes, great science, kind of a bummer, especially if you're 20 years old, you know, it's just, I didn't create any of this. You guys did that. And you're telling me I've got to fix something, you know, your stupidity for the last hundred years, you know, and they're like, so that's a very anxiety promoting, worrying, angry sort of load of information. But the thing is like, though, you know, all the facts, once you know the facts then got it, let's go, let's work let's do. And that's what regeneration is about. Yeah, you know, I got the sense you could pick what you're most passionate about and champion it. Because there's, there's some act in here that you can be the master of. And you may not be able to you may not have the time to do 100% of it. But there's at least one thing you can champion. Yeah, and you have allies. Yeah. You know, and this is getting back to um, what I discussed with David Johnson when we were talking about the climate problem as a whole. Like, okay, so if we have a, if we need a billion activists and we we don't have them or we're not going to get them, how do we create equivalent change? And so his concept is essentially creating a green print that uses elements of design thinking to essentially build a framework from which a bunch of activists could work on a global scale on one mission that they might all champion together. That seems like it's a lot of the same sort of idea or a complementary idea to what you're doing with Nexus, et cetera. It seems like it's a portal, a, a gateway or a, a door through which you're inviting us all in to say, here's what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, David's an, a neighbor, lovely, lovely human being. Uh, I don't really agree. I, I hope it works. I hope he does it. I support it avidly. But what I don't agree is that w- the, what you do is that takes too long. Mm-hmm. Um, it's top down. 
men have been in charge for, you know, quite a long time. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. And so <laughs> what we do is create the conditions for self-organization because that is what your body does. That's what everything in nature does. And so if we're going to do this, I, I disagree. We are going to have a billion activists. We are. And the question is, how, what will be the catalyst? What will be the focal points? And the reason we will have a billion activists is because, because climate will be the biggest movement in the history of humankind. Not because some charismatic vertebrate stood up and said, you know, follow me. Um, enough of that. <laughs> it's because of weather. Weather, just that's it. Affects it affects all of us. It affects all of us. And it brings us together, mm -hmm. actually. I don't care what religion you are or this or what you believe about that and so forth. You know, we have a common shared purpose and interest now, you know, that is far more important than what might divide us. And so to me to give up on a billion activists is actually, actually I, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm going for the billion. Yeah. And then the two. And the thing about it, you know, Karina, is that if we really look at the solutions, you know, and I say the solutions in Nexus are everything that's in the book, but it's everything that's in Drawdown and everything that's in Accelerated Pathways and other solution-oriented initiatives that are in the world. So it contains all of them, mm -hmm. okay? Not just ones in regeneration. Like I said, we need to see each other in a different way than the way we have organized everything in the world. And, and again, that's why I said by regeneration, biology is our teacher here. If you try to organize your body, you'd be dead. Okay. You can, the only thing you can change is what you see, read, eat, smell, smoke. Okay. You can change those things, right? You can change the inputs, but you can't change what's going on. Mm. And it's miraculous. It is beautiful. It is extraordinary. Okay. The human body, one cell in, in, in one second has more things going on in that cell than all the stars in the universe. So it's like, better not have the Republican Party in charge of your body, right? I mean, <laughs> or anybody in the other organization. So that is what less of life does. So we have to think about how can we create conditions for self-organization in the planet rather than, you know, socially. And again, if you look at all the solutions that are in Nexus and you didn't have a climate scientist alive, and you were clueless as to extreme weather saying, oh, I have a string of bad luck on the weather. You know, everything's burning and it's got too cold in Texas and oh, it's too warm here and like whatever. All that, you were clueless. You would want to do every one of those solutions because they have cascading benefits for people, for children, for future, for water, for health, for education, for nutrition. I mean, let's do them anyway. Mm -hmm. In other words, you don't have to have messianic or you don't have to you know like we have to do it because of guilt or shame and that's what happened with science it had talked about future existential threat it talked about you know and the it tacitly was about fear and threat you know like if we don't do this some, some bad things will happen you know and then activists took that up and they amplified it with shame and blame you know pointing fingers you know and well-deserved, by the way, you know, in terms of Exxon and Chevron and so forth, and no question. But, you know, fear, threat, shame, blame, and so forth, actually do not motivate. They do not create action. They do, they numb you. 
And most people don't even have the time to do that, you know, in terms of stop the Keystone Pipeline, which is hallelujah and bless Bill McKibben, everybody who got involved with that, but so forth. So we have to create something which is really about, like I say, regeneration is has big arms, which is this is create a much better world, a much more fascinating world and got the problem. We're going to use the problem as a way to transform who we are, what we do and what we're going to become, as opposed to see the problem as something that is um, oppressive, mm -hmm. that we're the object of it, you know, and somebody did that. I'm the object that's unfair. I'm mad. I'm going to act out as a victim. Really? The rest of your life, you're going to, going to be a victim. That's a stupid way to spend time on the planet, which is so beautiful. So, I mean, it feels to me like you're talking about essentially pushing from the bottom for change by changing your lifestyle. Not the bottom. No, the middle. The middle. Yeah, that's the thing. It's always been individual, the bottom, you know, then the top is conference of the parties, the government, Biden, you know, whatever, you know, going well, they're really slow. They don't get it. You know, uh, I mean, I'm not saying the Biden administration doesn't get it, but I mean, just saying is like, and then the bottom is activists, individual. I mean, that's what British Petroleum did. They individuated the problem, your carbon footprint. You know, we're just selling oil, you know, you know, or gasoline or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, we're doing what you want. You know, you're the problem. Tobacco industry actually discovered that way of individuating the problem. We're not the problem. You smoke. And and so that is wrong because there's only certain things that individuals can do if they think they're alone. Hmm. And that is the other thing. We've other climate, other nature, you know, we've other each other. I mean, and, and othering is separation, you know, making it separate, you know. And so, no, I'm not saying it's the, it's the middle out. A billion people is the middle and, and, and that is what is untapped. And that is that 98 to 98% of the world is disengaged. And we have to think, why are they disengaged? It's a good reason. I'm not blaming them at all. In fact, 40, 50% are empathetic. They're sympathetic. You know, they're like, oh yeah, this is really a big problem, but they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. So what's, where, that's the gap analysis we're trying to do, which is, okay, you know, why, what is it? You know, what are the obstacles? What's the resistance points? What is the communication lack? You know, where are we lacking communication? And so uh, that's to me the, 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 the opening, you know, that's there. It's just, it's, I mean, that opening is so big, you could, you know, it's, it's, it's like a yawning, mind opening, you know. Again, that's why I see climate as definitely, the changing weather is definitely perilous. It's absolutely perilous and it's grievous too, you know, the loss and the, sense of suffering it's causing and it's horrible and there's no question about it and at the same time that shouldn't disallow us from doing a 180 at the same time and looking the other direction to what it is telling us and what is possible as an individual interestingly because you have agency not just because you're an individual and that is why climate action systems and nexus really opens up that whole world of what yes you can do knowing that there's so many yous out there and they're your friends, your allies, they care. And that's who we are. Oh, that's beautiful. And I want to uh, bring up one more thing. Um, as I have heard this a few times before, and I've seen it in my environment, 
When we allow the earth a chance to heal, it heals remarkably quickly, even the climate. So I was hoping you could talk about that for a moment, because I think that helps to give people faith that we can make a difference. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that piece by Isabella Tree about the Nepa state in, in, in Sussex. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece, you know, but he, uh, she and Charlie, her husband, Charlie Burrell, inherited this uh, 3,500 estate that's um, basically a farm and on Sussex clay, which is just awful to farm in. And, um, and they tried to redo it and new equipment and new techniques and more chemicals and this, and they lost more money uh, than it was losing before they inherited it. And they decided to take out all the fencing, the ring fence it, and listening to a guy named Franz Vera, a, a, a Dutch ecologist, let it go wild. Okay. And they brought back three animals, uh, Tamworth pig, a, a type of horse and longhorn cattle that pretty much approximated the original inhabitants of the land, you know, 2000 years ago in Europe. And in the short time, in 27 years, 20 years, they have more red listed species on their land, on the land, the Nepa state, than all the conservation areas in the UK put together. Wow. And 3,500 acres the purple emperor butterfly, the turtle dove, the first nesting storks in UK for 600 years. And it they just let it go wild. And nature, it just restores so quickly. You see that, you know, of course, you know, um, in other places of the world, you know, Chernobyl, you go to look at the Chernobyl right now, the city of Chernobyl. I mean, it's a jungle, it's a garden, there's animals, there's creatures, the biodiversity there is enormous, right? It was never there before, you know, because there's no humans, right? And so the, the, the rate at which, uh, you know, nature restores itself is, is, is absolutely extraordinary. And what we know now, and this is a shift in climate science, you know, which is, it's science is never right. It just moves, it keeps moving, you know. And the assumption was that when greenhouse gases peaked, that they were up there for, you know, decades and hundreds of years, they would they'd stay up there and warming would not only persist, but it would increase for centuries. And so then you think, well, you're telling me that if we achieve net zero, that we're just going to burn up anyway, and kind of what the science said, you know, and so what's the incentive? And what's so great about the sixth assessment is that they realized that the models were wrong. And actually that when we hit net zero, that within a relatively short time, um, heating stabilizes uh, and and starts to, if we start drawing carbon down, which is what drawdown was about, uh, greenhouse gases, but carbon's the one we can draw down, um, then cooling begins. Mm. You know? And we never knew that before. I mean, we were if, if people want to go down the rabbit hole of climate science, I mean, really in, in depth, it's pretty depressing if you think about this is here for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, well, what's the point then, you know, to do everything. And now we have a goal and we, our data and regeneration show that we can get rid of fossil fuels by 2042 at the current rate. Uh, we just saw something today. Uh, the U S can be 40% solar, not counting wind by 2035, you know, I mean, the re 
it, it's interesting to know that McKinsey and uh, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, have been wrong about the growth and rate of growth uh, of wind and solar for 20 straight years. Hmm. They've been wrong. They've underestimated the rate of growth and the rate of the drop in cost. These are the best agencies in the world, the IEA, you know. And, you know, it's, it's just outpaced it in every way in terms of its rate of growth. So we have to understand that other things are exponential too, you know, not just things that we don't want. And that is the rate of human capacity and change. And when humans are on it, they're amazing. And human beings are on this. So, yes, what we face in terms of the weather is foreboding, no question about it. Um, but we shouldn't let that dark cloud occlude our vision of who we are in the best of humanity. And the best of humanity is coming to the fore. Well, I'm encouraged by the fact that even though Santa's Village got torn down in Scotts Valley, they replaced it with condos that are all electric. And when I first saw that, I'm like, what is the benefit of that? Like, it's just all electric. It's all solar run. They are essentially building a building that doesn't have any gas or other fossil fuels going into it. They were all um, built to lead certified levels. So I mean, essentially, having a minimal impact on the environment while creating stable places for people to live and grow. So I think that's great. I mean, if you ask me in regeneration, what's the number one solution, I would say depends how you look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, uh, but so I wouldn't, but the number one solution, if you're just doing CO2 metrics, is that condo electrify everything, everything, which I thought was opposite mm -hmm. at first. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, isn't natural well, gas better? I mean, you marketed that. No, no, you know? It has to be electricity from renewable energy. Mm -hmm. It has to be solar. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, the input has to be renewable, but to electrify everything. And there we go. When those go up, those engineers, those architects, those city planners, they all learn something. They learn a lot more. They're cutting their teeth. They learn how to do it better, faster, cheaper, uh, more effectively. They spread that information, you know, we're a learning species for sure. And so those, you know, this sort of the camel's nose <laughs> is, you know, slipping under the tent of regeneration. And as it does so, you know, the, the, the rate of, of change becomes, is, is something I think we uh, underestimate, you know, because we see the headlines, you know, about Bolsonaro and Orban and, you know, Trump you know, and all these things that go, oh my God, the world is going nuts, you know, and I wouldn't argue that one in that sense, but I, 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 I wouldn't, it's like, it's true, <laughs> but we got, that's another podcast, but I, I do feel like that it obscures what's happening. That's what Blessed and Rest, that book was about, which is, you know, we don't hear about the 1 million organizations that are devoted to restoring life on earth and, you know, social justice and indigenous rights, you know, we don't hear about them. But they're out there and they're growing and they're effective and things are happening. And so you just saw um, basically at the IUCN, the International Union of Conservation of Nature, which is the biggest conservation organization in the world, recognize and uh, institutionalize in the, in the presence, knowledge and wisdom of indigenous people into the IUCN. Like, wow. Uh, that is so important because 80% of the biodiversity is on 
tribal or unceded formal tribal lands or lands that are basically occupied and in, in, uh, uh, populated by indigenous, the 5,000 indigenous cultures in the, in the world. And it's a very important part of uh, the book, uh, indigeneity, indigenous uh, knowledge and wisdom. Um, and so to, to read that today, read that this morning was like, yes, you know, because again, it's kind of like climate was very male oriented and included women, frankly, a woman's way of seeing the world, being the world, thinking the world, women's science. Um, and conservation has been a very privileged white person's enterprise, you know, and, and not, it didn't have the best of intentions. Of course it does, you know, but it also had a blind spot, you know, which is it didn't really look at what I call observational science, which is indigenous people are scientists and it's encoded in their language. And we think, well, if you don't have a written language, you're not literate, you're illiterate. So therefore there couldn't be any science and it's actually upside down backwards. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Diné Navajo have narratives. These narratives, these songs, these stories actually are basically how they transmit scientific understanding generation to generation. And they have stories of, that can identify and talk about 700 different insects. Wow. Come on, show me somebody who's not an entomologist who knows anything about 700 insects, pollinators and so forth. So for us to discover that this wealth of, of understanding and observational science is the science of place, it's not, you know, science, which is empirical science, which is do an experiment. And if you can replicate it, then it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, observational science is uh, the science of, of places, of pattern, of change, of dynamic, of systems, which is you're looking at it from pattern recognition and so forth, you know. And it never repeats itself. Nothing in life repeats itself. No oak leaf is like any other oak leaf in the world. None, ever. Nature doesn't have straight lines, circles, or repetition. And so observational science is a completely different way of understanding the world. And the, we, the reason we know these are great observational scientists is they've been in the same place for 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 years. And they learned to live there without anything that we associate with, with in terms of survival. And boy, did they learn a lot. And boy, do indigenous people know a lot, First Nations, Native Americans, I mean, extraordinary. So just the very fact that we're at that point where not only are indigenous people reclaiming their rights, reclaiming their voice, reclaiming their sovereignty, but at the same time, white people, Europeans, colonists, settlers, or the organizations that came out of that are starting to recognize that, oh my God, you know, I mean, the, the people, the, I mean, Darwin called the Yamana people in Terra del Fuego beasts, golden beasts, you know, uh, and they have a language that has almost as many words as Japanese, hmm. the beasts, you know, and so, you know, appreciating now, finally, you know, after about 500 and some odd years, you know, of, of terror mm -hmm. and murder and rape and pillage and marginalization. And we just saw, you know, what Canada did to children in these Catholic schools, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and all that came out of a decree by the Pope, you know, and uh, really mandated that Spaniards and others could conquer 
you know, the world, you know, in, in the name of Catholicism and so forth. Uh, the doctrine of discovery. If you discovered it, it's yours. That was the doctrine of discovery. It came from the papal uh, decrees and so forth. They still have never, ever, ever said that decree was wrong or we'll get rid of that decree. That decree still exists mm. for this, to this day, you know. And so we're, we're living, a, again, another point of emergence in terms of human understanding and respect and honoring and that we didn't have you know we just had our academic science which is fantastic by the way i'm not downplaying that at all i'm just saying is like welcome to the world of observational science darwin himself you know putting aside his characterization of the yamana people was an observational scientist so was wallace mm -hmm. so was galileo so was copernicus for that matter you know i mean so the great science of the past came from observation, didn't come from empiricism. And um, so we are now welcoming back in, and we, I mean, who are we, you know? <laughs> but I'm just saying is that the world is starting to reconnect in that way. Um, what we human beings have uh, discovered and, and, and known for so long, and now it's being shared in, in a way that could come at a more a vital, important, uh, and urgent time is now. Well, I think that this interview will send me down quite a few more rabbit holes. Uh, something we didn't get into is my background starting in anthropology and archaeology. I actually prepared the skeleton of one of Jane Goodall's chimps back in my undergrad. So <laughs> your book is like a full circle connection to all of this. So I am hoping that we can keep this door open and reconnect again in the future. I would love to. I would love to. I love that too. I would love to end um, this interview as I end most of mine, which is just to ask this simple question. If there is a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, what would it be? And if you don't have one top of mind, just whatever thought you'd like to leave all of us with today. Well, as a person who's done a, a lot of public speaking, um, I can tell you questions are gold. Hmm. For a speaker... As my grandfather said once, he said, son, you don't, you don't learn anything when your mouth is open. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do public speaking and then you have Q&A, you know, it's like the, the, the questions are always, virtually always emblematic of a lot of other people who have the same question, number one. Number two, is you learn something from a question as opposed to just seeing it as a interrogative, you know? Um, and so uh, I would say the, that I love questions. Every day, what I question is myself, you know? I mean, what are you doing? And the questioning isn't maybe what you might think, which is, are you doing enough? Uh, could you do more? Uh, that's my workaholic self asking that question, mm. you know. Uh, but asking it from a deeper point of view, which is, are you taking care of yourself in a true way? I don't mean in a narcissistic way, you know, like, uh, I got my gym membership, I got this, I got that, you know, I have all these different... No, I mean in a sense of, again, of self-love in the sense of honoring that I'm a human being and I'm here. Because if there isn't that, then there isn't love for the rest of the world, no matter what you think or say. Hmm. There really isn't. 
And Regeneration is the second book in a trilogy. <laughs> There's a third book. And, but the third book, I won't give you the title now. I have the title. But the third book, and this isn't the subtitle either, it's about falling in love hmm. with the world. And not because I think it's going to change the world or anything, it'll change me. Because I write to learn, I don't write because I know. And so I, the question I always have for myself, am I actually creating, again, we talked about spaciousness early, but the spaciousness for my own being, you know, to honor, love, respect, my family, my friends, my networks, you know, uh, and uh, usually I fail on that, by the way. And but I'm always asking that question, you know, because it conflicts with my sense of urgency, my workaholic self, you know, this is so important, you know, do this. And um, so that's the question I, I ask myself, you know, the question I would probably ask in turn or or, or the suggestion I'd make in turn is what we talked about earlier, which is really for somebody to really take the time, it sounds odd, to take the time to find out where you live. Mm. Look at something, you know, and say, what is it? <laughs> and what started me on my path was I had a family uh, which was not good. And it was not safe to be in my home, mm. house, Whatever it was and I would go outside every minute I could because I was safe outside I always felt safe and so no matter what was happening thunder lightning floods even when I lived in the Sierras later you know in those fires I felt safe I never felt threatened by anything in nature but when you're outside what you discover as a child is you don't know squat <laughs> you don't know anything and you don't know the names of things you don't know what's making those noises you don't know what's crawling away when you pick up the rock you know and when you're a child inside you know you can do the light switches the tv the refrigerator you know i mean you you master the house like that you know it's really easy uh no mastery at all really and outside you know you could spend 10 lifetimes and you wouldn't know exactly you wouldn't master it there's no such thing and so what it developed was curiosity how does this work? What's the name? Who named it? What does the name mean? And, and those questions keep expanding. And so to this day, I really, well, I really am grateful for that because my books are about learning. They're not about knowing. Yes, do I, or in the case of the last two books, we have a lot of researchers, you know, so we are learning. Yes, of course. But it's really about taking what is and trying to I'm a step-down transformer. I'm not as smart as everybody that I read and the books I read, the scientists I draw from, you know. But but I was an English major, so what I try to do is take complex information and make it accessible, mm. you know, because that's what I need <laughs> as a as a person. You know, I know like Paul Stamets, people are just like amazing geniuses. I'm not that person. I'm the person who wants to help. You know, and mm. the way I help is to try to make language accessible and science accessible and to try to, you know, reconnect, you know, that sense of othering, you know, that is so pervasive in our society, whether it's Me Too or anti-Semitism or, you know, cultural or racial or religious. I mean, this, we just other everything and we just hear it and, and to actually try to in language and ideas and so forth to, again, create those 
possibilities for people to see how beautiful those connections are. Wow. Thank you, Paul. This has been incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you do. Really, Kimar be better. I mean, it couldn't be a better slogan for you. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled you've come on. Um, and I'm also itching to know what that third book is, start to finish. Um, I'm thrilled that I got the chance to review Regeneration before it's out for the masses. I'm loving it. And I'm fairly confident it will live on my coffee table as a conversation piece for years to come. So yeah, it's, it's an honor to have met you. I actually have quite a few questions from our audience, so I'll figure out another way to connect with yeah. you on that. I'd be happy to to respond to those questions. You know, I think again, to me, questions are gold. Yes, but your audience is gold. I mean, because those questions will stay with you sometimes, and right. you realize there's a question like, "That's a really good question." You know, I I haven't asked that myself, and somebody will raise it, and you go wow, that they're seeing the world from their perspective. Mm -hmm. How interesting, not just, I don't mean that in a kind of nice way. I'm just like, wow, you know, that isn't addressed or I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, the question is a thought. Yes. And every question actually is a statement in disguise as well. They're not trying, you're not trying to disguise. It just is. You can just change it around and it's a statement. And uh, so I welcome that in every way. I'm glad you got the book. I don't know if you got the Bound Galley or the real book. Uh, does it have color in it all the way through? It does. It's beautiful. Okay. You have. I have never seen that book yet. You haven't. It arrived on September 7th. So, yeah. There it is. I've never seen it. Wow. So I'm even more lucky, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. That, that's the first time I've seen the book. I mean, it's far bigger than I thought it was from the initial picture. I thought it was going to be, you know, I don't know, cahier size. And this is more, it's almost like the size of some of my textbooks. Yeah. Coffee yeah. table book is what I call it. Yeah. It's, of course, coffee table books sit there and just look good. <laughs> well, this one's already dog eared. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> good. Thank you so much. So, today's call to action for our audience, for all of you, is really clear. We can all start by ordering a copy of Paul Hawkins' new book, Regeneration Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. It's chock full of ideas for how we can all regenerate our precious planet as we've talked about. It's big, it's beautiful, it's audacious. And it will make a great gift this holiday season too, just in time. I can save this for certain. Mine is already well-loved and will be more so in time to come. So to order your copy, you can follow the links provided in my show notes or just visit regeneration.org. I've also been following them on Instagram. They have a very active page. I encourage you to check it out. And if you visit our podcast website, Care More Be Better, you will see an action page with a link to Paul Hawkins' Regeneration. I'm also compiling a blog about today's show, which will feature Paul's tips for things you can do to support Earth's regeneration and a few quotes that I've already extracted from the book. Thank you, listeners, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.